Hello everyone, welcome to the Manacast, conversations about a vision of life that is truly good news for us, for our neighbours, and for the world. My name is Jacob Garrett. I'll be taking over from Matt Anslow. With me, of course, is Jonathan Cornford. Hi everyone, glad to have you with us and glad to have you with us, Jacob. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Manacast, if you don't know, is the podcast of Managum, an organisation devoted to the integration of Christian faith with economics and ecology. Today, I'm talking to you from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people, the Kulin Nation, from the region known as Nam, or Melbourne. And I'm talking to you from the country of the Jajawurrung people in Bendigo in central Victoria. And we'd like to acknowledge these peoples as the traditional custodians of these lands, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. On this episode of the Manacars, we'll be talking about big picture economic alternatives, alternatives to our current model. And I admit, this is a topic that a few years ago, if I was scrolling through a podcast feed looking at what to listen to, I would have steered well clear of it. I hated economics in school. I completely ignored it in uni. My eyes still glaze over when I get into a conversation about the share market or global finance. But over the last few years, as I read more and talked to people about big ticket issues, especially like climate change or global poverty, economics just kept popping up. And it turned out that the more I thought about it, the more people educated me. Economics in a broader sense really isn't at all about how the dollar is doing against the yen or which stocks have gone up or down. It's a much bigger thing. Economics is all about what we value and how things really fit together. Yeah, that's right, Jacob. And in this sense, economics is closely related to words like ecology. Both of these words, economic and ecology, are riffing on the Greek sense that relationships between things can be thought of like an oikos, a household. And oikonomia, uh, at its root, economics is just means household management, whether it's how we order our own households or the household of society or the great household of ecosystems. Uh, We're talking about households here. And it seems to me that this is the larger sense that you often mean when you say that Managum is a ministry in good news economics. Just like when Jesus first proclaims the good news in Mark 1, believing it involves turning toward a new way of thinking and a new way of acting. But Before we can get into how and what we might turn toward, we first need to look at our current economic order. We need to look at square in the face. So Jonathan, what is our current economic order? How do the parts of our society currently fit together? So the way we'd talk about, or that I would choose to talk about our current uh, economic system is to use that big scary word, capitalism. Uh, It's a word that Uh, really describes some core elements of our economic system. Uh, One thing, it's we're part of a global system. So there's now no part of the world that's not involved in this single economic system that encompasses all of humanity and and, and actually much of the natural world now as well. Uh, And it's an economic system that's defined by uh, really a, a couple of core defining uh, characteristics uh, and those two the really two really important characteristics are that capitalism is defined by the goal of endless accumulation that is the core purpose in capitalism whether that's of people uh, acting within the system capitalists or the system itself is to be continually growing and a lot of people have made an analogy between capitalism and uh cancers, uh, that these are things that need to grow to survive. Without growth, they they die. Mm. So capitalism needs to grow, uh, and its goal is endless accumulation for no other point than uh, more accumulation. Sure. And capitalism is also characterized by uh, what I'm going to call endless commodification or the relentless commodification of everything. Uh, And that's a fancy way of dis- of saying that capitalism tends uh, to draw everything into the commercial world of buying and selling. That is, it t- draws to, tends to draw everything into a market so that it can be bought and sold uh, to make it tradable. 
And so because it's global, you say every part of the globe is now involved in a global system of capitalism. And because it's a, a commodification of everything, where do we start to see this uh, hit the road? What sort of examples does capitalism manifest in, say, in our society? Oh, well, we, we see it all around us, really. Uh, I mean, we see it every time we have an election campaign and all the, the major parties, in fact, not just the major parties, all the parties really have to be arguing for that their policies will somehow bring growth, economic growth. Uh, that's the, become the central criteria now uh, for our understanding of what a government has to do. It has to create economic growth. Uh, and that tells us we're living in a capitalist economy. So we see it at the big picture level. Uh, but in terms of, I think, where people feel it most and see it most uh, at our own little lives is, uh, one, uh, the harshness of the economic world, both in terms of uh, employment arrangements uh, that we are faced with or whether it's trying to um, find adequate and stable and decent housing or even just how much everything is on the market. So, uh, so I mean, I'm continually struck by in social media how one of the uh, one of the really interesting ways that capitalism has penetrated a new space is to to create a new commodity which is people themselves so on, on the, in the world of social media people are involved in actually creating a brand out of themselves to to somehow monetize themselves uh, and just what that does to a human person and to the human soul and to all of us who participated in some ways is a really big thing to think about. Mm, for sure. But like within these considerations, many people would say, sure, there are a lot of problems with the way we currently have capitalism. Uh, but if we're talking about alternatives, it almost seems like we could talk about two different alternatives. We could say, is capitalism the problem, in which case we need to look elsewhere, or is it just the way we do capitalism? Can we do it differently within the capitalist system? Yeah, and look, I think that's uh, a, an important question, and it's not actually it's not really a mutually exclusive question. Uh, so we can ask, you know, are there alternatives within capitalism? Can we do capitalism better? And are there alternatives to capitalism? So I think the answer to both of those questions is yes. So we can certainly do things better within capitalism, and there also are alternatives to capitalism. And it's not necessarily choosing plumping for one or the other, because uh, as as well, I guess we'll get to in a bit. The more you start to make changes within capitalism, bit by bit, then the more you're actually, especially once you're starting to make changes in the direction of of health for people and health for the planet, then um, then it's more and more becoming less and less capitalist, essentially. And at some point, uh, it will no longer be capitalism. So that 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 you know, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Mm, okay. So capitalism sort of subsists on this kind of continuum or spectrum of more or less capitalist. How does that work if capitalism is based on growth, though? Does that mean more or less growth, more or less capitalist? Or is that off point? Um, hmm. I guess that's a, a, a bit of a, um, a, a finicky question. Look, I think the simple way to answer that question is to say that uh, throughout uh, the history of the, the capitalist world economy, which I would say it's been roughly 500 to 600 years, it's existed with all sorts of other systems beneath it and inside it, and it's coexisted with all sorts of arrangements with governments uh, and societies. Uh, so you can have... Capitalism can continue to exist in a, under lots of different arrangements, um, which is fine, Uh Personally, I think where we should be heading for is something which is heading eventually away from capitalism. Right. And so given we're talking about alternatives, that kind of is what we're here to talk about is where do we need to head instead? But before we get that, why do we need to head anywhere? What are the problems with the way we currently do things, the current economic order? Sure. Well, I, I, my guess is that... um. Anyone already listening to this podcast is listening because at one level or another, they probably already see that we need an alternative to our current uh, economic system, however you want to name it, whatever you want to call it. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why we need an alternative. Uh, the, the really big ticket item is the multidimensional ecological crisis that we face at a planetary level. 
climate change is the big daddy of those, but uh, we're looking at uh, pretty serious rates of uh, habitat destruction and environmental pollution uh, and uh, uh, soil degradation, a whole bunch of things which are pretty scary and, and that really we just can't ignore anymore. So that's that's the big, big issue. Mm. Uh, we are also seeing uh, both within Australia, in our own country, but globally, um, the, the pretty radical widening of economic inequality amongst uh, peoples. Uh, so the gap between the poorest and the richest wealthy uh, globally, so the poorest and the richest globally is getting vast. Uh, in Australia itself, and in virtually every country, that, that gap is widening too. Uh, and particularly for the people at the lower end of the spectrum, there's a uh, growing economic precariousness. Uh, so employment at the bottom of the spectrum for those who have employment is becoming uh, uh, more precarious uh, and they feel people are more vulnerable. Mm. Uh, the system itself is, uh, has all sorts of vulnerabilities and instabilities, as we saw in the, the global financial crash. So the sorts of systemic factors that led to the GFC in 2009, uh, they haven't gone away. In fact, they're a lot worse now than they were in 2007, 2008. Um, so there's uh, some pretty big vulnerabilities there. We've seen really in the US the ways in which their their you know toxic commercial system has uh, affected their politics. We saw that very um, very dramatically during the, the the Trump presidency, but that's been the case for a long time. And it's also the case in our own country where it's not quite so crude and quite so sharp, but the, the same sorts of trend, undermining of democracy by big money is, is very real here too. In Australia, particularly one issue where most of us are, are faced with at some level is the, the, quest, the housing affordability crisis, particularly if you're young. Absolutely. You think you bet, yeah, how are you going to live, you know, uh, because it's just become ridiculous how, how to um, afford a house. Uh, gee, it's, uh, so I feel like I'm going on. Uh, let me finish. You know, <laughs> there's so many reasons. <laughs> uh, you know, and the other, you know, the, the things that people will be really, I think, feel personally is that uh, actually at a very deep level in our society and culture, we're not well. We're a sick culture, a sick um, society that was particularly measured by the level of mental ill health, by relationship breakdown by experience of alienation and loneliness all sorts of uh, social data we could unpack to, to um, look at that but but really at a core core level under this current system we're just not doing well as at a human level mm. and it sort of goes back to what you said about brittleness like it's almost like a relational or a personal brittleness that's built in by not having the system serve you or not not being located well within it yeah and so, well something really fundamental is happening to us as human persons and particularly because what defines us as humans is our, our relationships something is happening to the nature of our relationships not just within our families but our social relationships our relationships more broadly within community and to government all, all of these things are coming into the picture and it, we're and we're struggling. We're not. We're not doing well. And 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 a, a final part of that picture, uh, which I think is, uh, uh, most people listening to this, this podcast will be listening with an interest in Christian faith as well. Um, I think we can make a pretty strong case to say that Christian faith is not doing well within the system. That uh, that within capitalism and and especially within affluent capitalist societies, uh, people are finding it harder and harder to to maintain belief. And to, to find how what it means to be faithful to to Christ uh, in this time in this age, mm, it seems in my experience that sort of the expression of Christian faith is becoming more and more marginal. The options for expression, the ways that can actually contact with your life, become more and more narrow as well. Certainly, sure. But it's the sort of thing that like one of the things we get told a lot, implicitly or explicitly, though, is like we've never had it so good. So how could we simultaneously be saying there's all these crises and what's often called affluenza, all those social and mental issues taken together? Is there anything to the idea that this is just the best it's been, even if it's not that good, and that everybody in history just had it even worse in all these ways? 
Yeah, um, it's. I mean, that's a really big question, and there's lots of complex detail to it. But at a very simple level, um, at the core of that statement, we've never had it so good, is a very fundamentally uh, capitalist way of measuring human well-being. Uh, so uh, quite rightly, in Australia, we've never had it so wealthy. So even if you're, for anyone who's even struggling to think about housing, actually, even though housing is a is a big issue for us, if you actually measured the amount of the Earth's resources that pass through your hands and through your homes each year and compared that to your grandparents at your age, you would find it was vastly more. So we, we have access to and we consume more of the world's resources each year than humans ever have before uh, at a staggering level. Uh, and that's what people are talking about when they say uh, we've never had it so good. You, you can watch Netflix on your phone while you're on the tram, if you're allowed to be on the tram, that is. Yeah, well, we are recording this from uh, a know, state of lockdown. We've never had it so good. I guess the question is, is that really good for you? The deeper questions is, what is good for you? Uh, and and that's where we're losing out, I think. Yeah, and that's sort of where the historical touchstone, there's, there's no going back, and we don't want to fall into romanticizing the past. But it is very useful to think, what are the other ways people have measured and thought about human well-being and therefore in that broad economic sense, how do people tend to structure their society, think about the value of things within it? What sort of touchstones can we look to to think it doesn't always have to be defined by markets, it doesn't always have to be defined by commercial value? Sure. Uh, it's. I think it's really important to say that the sort of system we have, I'm calling it a capitalist world system, is not inevitable. It's not just the way things are. It's not normal, whatever that means. It's actually a, a product of a whole bunch of historical accidents. Uh, there have been lots of other economic systems in history. Uh, and one of the, the problems that we have is that um, we have such uh, low levels of literacy about history now uh, people, what we understand about history is is quite small, and actually, what we understand about economic systems is, is very little. So, when Margaret Thatcher in the nineteen eighties um, told people when she's bringing in her, her very harsh series of economic uh, neoliberal economic reforms, uh, she would continually say there is no alternative, and that was her line, and that's been essentially what has been the dominant party line for a long time now that there is no alternative to this. But it's, it's simply not true. There have been other ways of doing things, and there can be. Mm. If we look through history, there's a lot that we can learn from just seeing different forms of economic relationship. Uh, so uh, at a very basic level, if we look to most traditional societies and most ancient civil, uh, civilizations, these have nearly all been what we would call distributive economies, or very many of them have been distributive economies. That means... Uh, that uh, what you what you get and what you consume is not somehow determined by a market, but is actually determined by some system of social distribution that's based on your your place in society. And some of those systems have been kinder, and some of them have been harsher. But it's simply a different form of economic structure. Mm. Or if we look to medieval Europe, uh, a, a time that is probably really misunderstood by a lot of us uh, and un understood as really just lords and peasants um, when, <laughs> when it was actually much more than that, much more complex and much more varied than most people understand. Absolutely. That was a time when we have a, what we call a very strong moral economy, when there were very strong, uh, they're actually really theological ideas that, or moral ideas about how uh, economics happened, about uh the charging of interest, how debt and credit worked, about the setting of just prices, about the nature of labour relationships, uh, the, the nature between uh, employer and em employee, uh, the relationship between merchants and cities and governments. All of these things fitted within a, within a moral economy. I guess, I guess on that one, like the, the sort of commercial or sort of dog-eat-dog -dog real politic uh, side of me or society that we seem to live in maybe i listen to that and i go well who's enforcing that like how does everybody play so fair how how does it not become just a race to the bottom in that sort of society well it wasn't i mean it was certainly no perfect picture by any means uh, and we uh, i don't think we could get into the details here it's probably a podcast in itself to talk about medieval europe 
Uh, so it was by no means perfect and there were plenty of holes. But I guess the key point for us here is it was a different system. There was a different way of structuring things. And there were some, uh, some really interesting and some, uh, some things we could learn from it. Uh, yeah. So another really a, a important example to, to, to point to that there are different ways of doing things is uh, that of Imperial China uh, in the second millennium uh, of, of AD and, and particularly uh, during the, 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 the Qing dynasty. Um, so in the, in the 1700s, China was clear in a way the largest and most sophisticated and most developed market economy in the world. Wow. So it, it was a market economy, but it was not a capitalist economy. I don't have time. I don't really want to bore you with going into the distinction between the two. <laughs> but, but essentially, what, what I'm saying is that actually they China operated, they had markets much like we understand them. People buy, bought and sold things in markets. That was the primary means for distributing things. But it wasn't within a system that demanded constant uh, and never-ending growth. And actually, so it was characterized by a system of much smaller economic units rather than really big uh, heavyweight corporations that tended to dominate things. Um, it wasn't an industrial society, what we call, but it was what's been described as an industrious society. So it had quite complex divisions of labor, uh, quite uh, strong use of technology, all sorts of things that we, we have, most people either don't know or have been forgotten. And this was all within uh, a, an economic structure, not so different to ours, and but yet with quite different social outcomes. Mm. Again, I don't want to romanticize it because there is lots of problems as well. But the key point is there are other ways of doing things. And it seems like we see that when push comes to shove in certain times and places. Like I've even read some economists or climate economists talking about we need wartime mobilization for change of structure and i guess you do see it in like a wartime era people start to go well the most important things have changed we now care about this and that whereas we used to care about making money now we just care about surviving or winning the war and it does tend to shift people's priorities yeah that's i mean during the second world war particularly uh in both britain and in australia it's it's just staggering the uh, economic feats that were achieved. Uh, both, so government working with uh, private industry and with society more generally managed to basically reformat food production, reformat industry, and reformat consumption to serve a whole new, to be directed to a whole new purpose. And the purpose was surviving in a war. Okay, but we can see, we can learn from that when 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 society and politics is gripped by a new vision of purpose of collective purpose that incredible things are possible mm -hmm. and it does sort of just show that system follows sense of value like we sort of said at the beginning but it also seems like these economies it's not just like the, the economy almost seems the way that politicians talk about it maybe it almost seems like a separate entity something that you know we need to work towards growth and everybody's in agreement what was the different orientation or what were the different orientations in these times and places that allowed them to have a different way that econom economics sat within the rest of society? So the fundamental difference between a capitalist world system and virtually all other economic systems that have existed in history, this is what makes capitalism unique in history, is that in all other uh, economic systems, the economy, if we were to use that term, has been embedded within a larger political and social system. That is, the economy has been made to serve the purposes of that society and that polity. And that doesn't necessarily mean they were uh, made to serve great purposes. Some of the, the social systems they were meant, uh, the economy was made to serve were quite harsh and others were quite benign and even beneficial for people. But the point is that was the economy served the people, mm. uh, served the social system rather. In capitalism, uh, what really the, the sort of great inversion that happened around about the 16th, 17th, 17th century in Europe and then spread to the rest of the world is that that picture turned on its head was that political and social systems became embedded within a much bigger economic system. So 
it turned out that societies and politics and countries were were serving an economic system, uh, and that's the, the the really big thing that we need to change. If we if we want to come down to the to what we fundamentally need an alternative to, it's need we we need to re embed the economic system within our social system. That is, economy needs to become a servant rather than a master of the people. And even that sounds like, you know, you talk about how it spread from Europe and part of me goes, well, it spread. Why? Because was it because it was successful? Because it was, was there a kind of survival of the fittest of economic systems going on? Or like, why did that one outcompete all the others seemingly? Oh, it, because it, the thing about capitalism is incredibly dynamic. So we know the story of European imperial colonialism. It expanded through a combination of military aggression and commercial aggression. Very often the two went together. Uh, so, for example, the, I, I talked about imperial China in uh, the uh, 1700s. Uh, that, China was very resistant to really being penetrated by this new European economy. And it was, wasn't was until the Opium Wars of the 18, uh, 1840s where basically the, uh, the British and then the other Western powers came in with their new technology gunboats and forced China into their, into their economic system uh, and at a time when China was uh, not doing that well. So that, that's a good example of, of how it expanded. Mm, so it's not really a matter of contingency or uh, the best system wins out, but sort of, the, it, or it is a question of contingency. It's things didn't have to go this way, therefore things don't have to stay this way. I think that's really helpful because when I just sit here and I think, well, it's the one that's ascendant. It's the one that works. It's the one that we're all familiar with. But if it is possible to actually have the master become the servant again, how do we do that? Is it a matter of throwing off the chains all at once or do you make more gradual change? (laughs) How does change happen? Uh, yeah, look, I guess you know that's usually framed that question. You know, do we need a revolution or do do we need reform? Uh, on this, uh, I think pretty. It seems pretty clear to me that revolution is a bad idea. Uh, that the idea of trying to uh, remake remake society from the ground up or or redesign it from a blank slate. Uh, ends up doing way more harm than good and often usually ends up defeating its own purposes. Uh, you can't, you just can't build human society from a blank state. We, the position we need to start from uh, in any sort of change is here, where we find ourselves now. Uh, and, and so I think in one sense, uh, so that says we need to begin with reform. Uh, but, you know, reform can seem like a pallid sort of word, can't it? Um, but it, and often people think, well, reform just means window dressing, and and sometimes it, it can be, it can be, you know, just tinkering around the edges. But it needn't be. Uh, reform, beginning to make changes which aren't revolutionary changes, can uh, can proceed re- actually quite quickly, quicker than you think, to to beginning to institute some quite deep structural reforms without having thrown the baby out with the bathwater, which is what you get with revolutions, and without trying to uh, reimagine something perfect, uh, which is never going to work from a blank slate. Uh, so uh, that's how we need to think about change: is is not trying to imagine a perfect society and then think about, well, how on earth do you bring that perfect society about? The the question we need to ask is, where are we now, and what do we need to do next to make things better from here? So, I mean, I'm a bit younger than you. Maybe I've got more revolutionary spirit. I like the idea of just burning it all down and starting again. But I'll defer to your wisdom. But I guess that leaves us. Where are we and what actually can we do from here? Well, there's a lot uh, we can do. Uh, And the idea that there's uh, no alternatives out there or that there's not much we can do different is very false. There's a whole bunch of uh, alternatives. So just within 
the world system as we find it, the, the current capitalist world system, there, are, there is, is a bunch of variation in how different countries do things. So uh, very simply, most countries have much higher greenhouse gas reduction targets than Australia does sure. as a very simple alternative, something we could do differently. Uh, in Scandinavian countries, they have very different taxation systems to us, uh, more equitable, with more equitable social outcomes, different housing systems, again, more equitable. Uh, in Germany, have, they have quite a different structure for their uh, corporate uh, corporate structures with industrial relations, relations between worker and company. Uh, so there's a whole lot of differences that we can learn from that already exist out there in, in the world. And are those just a matter of how we vote, or is it bigger than party politics? Uh, so how do you mean, Jacob? As in, like, you say those things and it sounds a bit more on one side of perhaps what we're told is the political spectrum than the other. Is it really just saying we need to we need to vote this way and not that way? Oh, it has to do with the direction, of, I guess, of the different the political visions uh, and economic visions that have gotten up within different countries. So particularly in the Anglo-Saxon countries, uh, Britain, Australia, America, uh, we've followed a particular type of political and economic vision, uh, and which has tended to be much more heavy emphasis on the individual and the market uh, compared to the more social system. So uh, I guess you're inferring that they sound more left-wing systems they have in Western Europe. I think I can just sort of, I, I hear many people thinking, oh, well, that's just socialism, isn't it? Or soft socialism. <laughs> well, just socialism. There's all sorts of different things that, I mean, we said capitalism is a complex word. Socialism is too. It's a word that probably we need to stop using until we actually um, can start to fill it out with more detail. Um, but I think we should just say that they're different systems, that they show that we could do things quite differently uh, and have different outcomes. And there's places we can go to learn. We don't have to take everything uh, that we see from everywhere, but um, we can learn things from, from other, other places. Hmm. There, there's also a lot of thinking and hard work that's been going on for quite a while now uh, that is, I guess, under the radar of most people's vision and you don't really see it much in the media uh, and it's not really being talked about in our mainstream politics but is really important thinking and it's important for people to, uh, that i'm going to call summarize by calling it thinking about a uh, uh, new economy or, or call it the new economy movement a whole which is a sort of a grab bag term to describe a whole bunch of different uh intellectual efforts that are imagining uh, where we could go from here, uh, what changes we could make, what sort of economic systems we could institute. Um, and it's important for people to know that there is uh, some, there are some coherent economic visions and systems being conceived of, which are not, don't require a revolution of us, uh, and, and that have a, a lot of creative ideas ready to go and in actually, in actual fact, we're beginning to implement some of the, the ideas from this movement already. What sort of stuff? So, for example, a term that you people will probably be have heard at some level is the idea of a circular economy. So the idea of a circular economy is that uh, we have a system uh, that really wastes a lot of resources, physical resources. We keep digging things up in the ground and cutting trees down and using them once or twice, and then throwing them into landfill. It's tremendously destructive ecologically, tremendously inefficient in terms of resource use, and that what we need is a system that begins to close the loop on resource uh, on resource use, that we can uh, make much better use of things, that we can recycle, where we can reuse, we can use things more efficiently. So that's... Uh, a series of ideas that began out on the fringe in the new economy movement and it's now become quite mainstream. You, you'll hear it being talked about by politicians and in the press now. Uh, it's, you know, the whole waste industry is now starting to think about and begin to move towards the idea and be instructed with the ideas of a circular economy. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a whole bunch of uh, thinking and ideas out there like that uh, that are already beginning to inform how we think about economics. Some of them, some of it's really under the radar. 
others is coming into the political mainstream. So in the last US election, you heard a lot of talk, perhaps if you're following it from some of the Democrat candidates about the idea of a Green New Deal. And that's really um, building on the idea of in, in America's history, they the, the New Deal was what Franklin Roosevelt brought in in the 1930s uh, to respond to the Great Depression, which is a, a huge system of economic reform and, and economic initiative by the government to basically create employment, but also to put the national economy on a new footing, to, to build new infrastructure that was going to help the nation. Mm. And so people are saying, well, we need something like that again, but a Green New Deal, something that's going to, uh, a new initiative by government that's going to bring much bigger social benefits, but also put us on a much better ecological footing that uh, requires big investment and new new developments. And is there more traction for that now than there used to be? Like, or are we being dragged to these things, kicking and screaming by a number of luminaries? Oh, I think we are being dragged to them, kicking and screaming. And I'm not saying that that's the answer, but all I'm trying to point to is that there is a lot of thinking going out there. And there's a lot of um, overlap between the various different types of terms you might hear from the new economy movement. It's not necessarily one thing. Um, it's taking us a while to get there, but these thing, ideas are beginning to seep in. Um, I guess the really important to, thing for take-home message is that there is a lot of hard work being done already um, and some pretty serious work, and it's already beginning to bear fruit. And there's a lot of other, other stuff that's really just waiting to go in terms of good ideas for directions we could go in from here where we find ourselves now. Mm. And it's very encouraging, but it's sort of, prompts the question in my mind, like, why isn't it in the political mainstream? Why don't we hear about these things more? Why does it feel like all this stuff is waiting in the wings, but no one's rolling it out? Yeah, I guess it's always the way with these things, the process that they often, and I guess gives you some hope for things which feel pretty marginal. But in history, it's the big changes in the history of usually have always begun at the margins. They've started out small, uh, and it takes a while for them to build and then until the, the logic that they're presenting becomes no longer able to be ignored uh, and people mm. have to engage with it. Uh, you, you hear people talk about an idea whose time has come. Well, I think we're sort of in that space. It's still coming and there's still a lot of hard politics to be done to get uh, some ideas up. But the ideas are there is, I guess, the important message mm. for us today. And what are kind of the, the first steps toward bringing that in more if these if these are the sort of ideas that need to become mainstream what's the next phase of that process do you think well uh, so let's just talk about australia let's not talk globally because that, that is way too big so let's ask the question what if what if jacob um uh, you were made prime minister and i was made deputy prime minister tomorrow <laughs> Uh, you know, I think I'd rather it the other way around. What what should we do? What what, what should be our uh, you know our first uh, initiatives in government be? Uh, that's uh you know that's a fun question to to, to lie <laughs> awake at night with. Well, you know, I reckon it's helpful to say that the some of the first big changes we'd need to make are not changes that are doing anything new at all, but actually just unwinding some changes made by recent governments in recent history that have been quite destructive and, and taken us backwards. The first uh, thing we need to do is to even just undo some things and reset to where we were about even 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, so what sort me, of stuff? Let me just give you a, 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 a the top of my list if I was to do this. And, and you could maybe come up with a better list, but here's a list, you know, an example. Uh, the first thing would be to, to bring in again some form of pricing carbon pollution uh, so we had that uh, under the Gillard government uh, it wasn't a perfect system I thought it could have been better but it was would have been it's a hell of a lot better than what we've got now uh, when uh, the Abbott government uh, trashed it and we would have been in a lot better position in terms of our uh, our energy system and reducing carbon pollution than the place we find ourselves now in in Australia so we, we need to get back there. And, and there's different ways you can do that. I'm not going to try and sell one way over another, but we need to price carbon pollution again. And along with that, we need to remove all the subsidies of the fossil fuel industry, which the, um, have been uh, maintained. And it's quite appalling the level at which we subsidize the fossil fuel industry in Australia. Mm. 
second big change which has to do with particularly the, our housing uh, affordability crisis is we need to remove it's this thing called the capital gains uh, discount uh, so that's something the Howard government brought in which is um, essentially when you sell a house and you get a big windfall of money from because it's increased in value it used to be that that got taxed uh, and the amount that that is taxed is, has been halved so that just provided a much bigger incentive if you want to make money the way to do it is to buy and sell houses and that's really uh, provided a lot of fuel for the fire of our housing affordability crisis uh, and along with that uh, we need some to adjust negative gearing policy that goes with housing I don't think we should do away with it altogether but it can be much better targeted for better social outcomes uh, very simply, we should reverse all the tax cuts to high income brackets that have been handed out recently um, and we need to end um, the superannuation tax incentives that have been handed out in the last 10 to 15 years, which are basically a, a something like a reverse wealth wealth tax and in, incentive to high income earners to to make more money. Uh, you, you get no benefit from it really if you're a, a uh, low income earner and it costs the government uh, this one thing that superannuation tax incentives costs the government more than the pension cost the government wow so if we did away with all these things just reversed them uh, we would have better social outcomes particularly in housing and carbon emissions it would be less inequitable and the government's bottom balance sheet would be a whole lot healthier than it currently is <laughs> there's a pretty simple list for you Jagger. Sure. It doesn't fill me with a ton of hope initially, though, because it sounds like we're getting more capitalist or more aggressively so than 10, 20 years ago. Yet all these other things are also uh, in the mix of the new economy movement. What direction does it seem like Australia is moving on these things? Well, um, I have to say right at the moment doesn't seem like we're going in a great direction, but uh, things can change quicker than than you think. Uh, you know, uh, we've seen that at different points in our in our nation's history. Uh, so, you know, it's really the the whole um, the sliding doors thing of history. You know, things there's multiple points at which things can go in different directions. You know, one this direction or mm. could have gone in that direction, and we've had a whole bunch of those, uh, and we've just ended up down this path. And it needn't it didn't have to have gone that way. And we don't have to continue going that way. We don't need to be fatalistic about it. Sure. So that's that's about turning around from recent paths. What are some new paths we could forge? What are some new things we could do? Sure. There's a lot, really. And, and I don't want to, you know, we shouldn't get into a big, too big a shopping list here. But, you know, the top things would be uh, we need much higher efforts at, at uh, carbon reduction uh, and higher re redu carbon reduction goals. And there's lots of ways you can do that. You can not just and not just by incentivizing um, renewable energy. Obviously, that's a real big part of the equation. But so much of the thinking on on how we think about um, climate change mitigation is around simply producing clean energy. Uh, when one of the big things we need to think about is how to become more efficient energy users to to re to reduce the amount of electricity we use. Mm, I've read those stats that say things like if we do switch to sustainable energy production and renewables 100%, we can't just go on with business as usual. Things have to change with how much we're using, how efficiently we're using it. Yeah, and because we don't want to be building, um, even if you think um, windmills are a good part solution, you don't want to be building windmill uh, wind turbines all over the countryside. Mm. So we need to have some sort of um, be reducing... Uh, increasing our energy efficiency, reducing our, our use of electricity. So that's there's different ways you can do that uh, through tax incentives, uh, through funding research and development for that. There's, there's a lot of interesting things you can do around um, decentralized energy grids that have been done in, in other places in the world. Um, so we're not dependent on this big, humongous national energy grid system, which requires huge scale infrastructure. So you can have more localized energy infrastructure. So there's a real, there's lots of really interesting things that have already been done in the world and work well that we could look to. That's mm, very encouraging. It is. I th there is, and that's once we we lift our eyes beyond the level of what we see in the news and in the newspapers, uh, there's actually a, a lot of hopeful things happening out there. Mm. Look, there's plenty of other things I could 
talk about things we could do in a regenerative agriculture would be my next big one, uh, which is a, a new footing for agriculture. There's all people are already doing it in Australia, which we could, but government could support it a lot more good ways. Um, talked a little bit about housing. There's lots we can do in that space to make things better. And there's some nifty things we can do to make things more equitable. But I, I won't, um, there's, you know, let's not go into too much detail here. Sure. And it does sort of show like a lot of it is about imagination. It's about a lot of what we've been talking about is vision and imagination. And then it seems like the last component is will. What what motivation for these things is there? On a more personal footing, how can people express their will for a different world and their will for a different system day to day in their household, in their community? Yeah, it's good. That's really good, important point you've made, Jacob, around imagination, uh, because a lo it has so much to do with the imagination, and you know, and our will to do new things is connected to our ability to imagine them. Mm. Uh, and the more we can see another world coming, and we can see some some of the shape of it, then I think the more motivation to to work for it you have. Mm. Uh, and I think so. You know, we're essentially getting to. There's a political question at the background there. How does change happen? But one of the the key ways, the sort of pre-political things, I think, and this is, a, I guess, a particularly Christian reflection on how, how change happens, is that we're called to live. Uh, one of the ways of thinking about who followers of Jesus are, they're people who are living in the future now. Mm. They're people who are embodying the new world that is to be and in Christianity, we mean the new creation that we are destined for and beginning to live into it now. And that is something we can think about in really concrete terms uh, so that we can begin to live into that new world. And that that is something we can begin to experience. And then and through the our own practice of 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 different ways of living is something that reshapes our imagination and that something can reshape our politics. Uh, and gives us a different political base uh, to stand from. And in my experience, it seems like there's a positive feedback loop with a lot of those things that you get shown a new vision or new possibilities, and then you can start to embody those things which fill you with motivation, and you could stand in a different place to then see the next stage, and then you can embody those things. And it also, I guess, goes back to that faith malaise that is sort of ever-present in... Uh, the Western Christianities we are exposed to, that once you actually start doing stuff and your faith takes physical form, yes, uh, yes, it starts to be more real as well because we're really physical creatures in addition to our minds. Absolutely, we we need to faith needs to be enfleshed. The word must become flesh in our material lives, uh, and that's when it becomes really exciting and takes on color and shape and reality. That that it's not just real to you, but that actually other people can see. So the idea of communicating faith isn't just talking about abstract ideas that no one quite believes, but it's something that can be pointed to in the substance of, of lives and seen. So I guess my question to finish is like, if this is all the high level stuff and we can't necessarily control the way that politics is going, except with our small vote, how can we start to inflesh alternatives in a very grounded way? Like, well, it's the sort of thing we could spend ages and different podcasts on, but just to gesture at a few different options, regardless of whether this or that party is in, in power or what they choose to do, what can we do on the ground? Yeah, sure. And I, 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 you're right. I think this should be broken up into a few podcasts, really. But we're getting to the question of, you know, and if we ask it in a more pointed way, um, what can Christians or churches do? Uh, we're getting to the heart of the question of what's required of Christian witness really in our times. Mm. Uh, look, for the sake of today's discussion, the sort of really basic sorts of things I would be pointing to is we need to be people. Uh, so fundamentally, the change we need to see it happen in the economic system is that we use less of the Earth's resources, uh, stop consuming them at such a high rate. And so we need to be people who find ways who do that personally. Mm. Uh, and that requires attending to our own forms of consumption, how we consume. Uh, it probably requires thinking about our own incomes and how we make our incomes, how much of our incomes we use for ourselves. Uh, it 
requires moving into that whole world we call ethical consumption, you know, thinking about what it means to consume in ways that are beneficial for other people, for other people involved in the economic transactions that sit behind our consumption, but also for the planet as well. Uh, and we need to be living in a way, finding economic forms and practices which aren't just so individualized. So one of the things, and this is, I think, the, one of the areas where churches really could make a difference uh, and help people refire a new economic imagination is to begin to rediscover all the, the forms of and joys of economic cooperation that are, that are possible between people. Mm. So ways of doing things together. So uh, so consumer cooperatives, a little con people buy, getting together to buy bulk goods, uh, and particularly if you're buying, uh, say, bulk fair trade goods or bulk organic goods to make them more affordable because they're expensive. Mm. Uh, you're working together for a shared social outcome that you all benefit from. And it, it's and often fun to do, but it involves getting together, um, things like that. Uh, there are all sorts of uh, forms of economic cooperation, sharing tools. If you people live near each other in a neighborhood, uh, sharing, uh, you know, mowers and whippersnippers, things like that. Church is also a great place to think about um, rethinking investment. Uh, that would be a podcast in itself, how we can, you know, help people who have money invest it into really good outcomes, whether that be just even within their communities or more broadly within the community. Uh, there's lots of things we can do to begin to rebuild essentially economic cooperation between people. It seems like that's the theme, that it's about not just being a, an atomic economic unit yourself as an individual, but doing things together. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the big takeaway, start thinking more than me and my household, me and my economic needs yeah yep uh, that, that's really the direction that's the alternative we need and that's the al alternative to capitalism that somewhere or, or other has to come hmm. which is very much like we said at the beginning that change of vision that change of value how do you proceed with your system and what's it there for uh big part of it and the imagination as we've said all right, well, I think that's definitely more than enough to be going on with for today's podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion, folks. Thanks for listening. In the meantime, if you want more good news economics, check out Manor Matters. Manor Matters is the quarterly publication of Managum, and it's available for free online at managum.org.au. Managum is a ministry funded entirely by donations. If you'd like to support our work, that same website is the place to go, managum.org.au. Many thanks to all of you who fund some of this work. And we leave you now with a quote from Serge Latouche, a French economist philosopher who said, to imagine and construct a downscaled society that works, we must go beyond the economy. We must challenge its domination of the rest of life, in theory and in practice, and above all, in our minds. Jonathan, thank you, and we'll catch you all next time. Thank you, Jacob.